0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello, and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again for this new season is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We are back from our long summer break. This is part way through September at this stage.
1: Yeah, it's been a while.
0: Um, It has been a while, and it has been quite a while since I recorded an episode. When I left you guys last, I had all these promises and visions and hopes and dreams of... Being so organized and recording a whole bunch of episodes during the summer, and then having a very languid autumn where I could just post all of these things that I already had recorded, and of course that happened, and of course everything went totally smoothly, and that's exactly what's happened here. I lie. Um, Yeah, you
1: should have known that. Like the languid season is summer, not autumn, Rachel. You say that, but it's been such a busy summer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've seen each other. Like, not at
0: all. Yeah, Phoebe and I, I think even in the last episode, just before the summer, we were discussing all of these, like, audiobooks that we were listening to together, and we were saying what we were going to be listening to over the summer, which is Brideshead Revisited, which this episode is about however did we manage to listen to the audiobook together sadly not it's so ridiculous i I, only, I keep making this joke that phoebe and i have not managed despite living in the same flat together not managed to spend like i don't know three days back to back together in the last three months it, oh, it's been unreal we've had a lot of travel yeah we've had some COVID incidences Um, that too we also forgot that now that in-person events are back on that uh, some of the volunteering work and youth work that we do is back in full gear so we had a large event that we were organising which uh Took up maybe a month of my time. Mm-hmm. Uh. And a few weeks
1: of mine too, but not at the same time. No. So, like, a month for you beforehand and, like, three weeks for me
0: afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Which was exactly the same as the travelling, which was, yep. you know, like, I was gone for four weeks and then you were gone for three weeks. Yep. And then, you know, so we just kept missing each other like chips in the night. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that
1: has... Yeah, it was so bad that in terms of reading Brideshead Revisited... I read it while Rachel was away in the UK, even though I also was travelling to the UK. Yeah, but, you know. you know, no, like, audiobook listening for that. I mean, we did get, like, the first, what, couple of chapters Yeah, listened to together? We had a road trip, so that's a great time to listen to them, but after that it was just...
0: I had to read it. Yeah, Ships in the Night passing. But don't worry, I do have episodes planned for the next season. It may, they will happen. They will happen. It may be less organized than I would like, less, you know, measured and less kind of rushed or more rushed rather than I would have liked. But we will get there. They are in the works. And we did actually manage to fulfill our promise of coming back with a Brideshead Revisited episode.
1: Which I think we deserve a pat on the back for, really. Oh,
0: honestly, by the, like, I think it was only within (laughs) the last week or so that we realized we would be able to record an episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But luckily, uh, the topic that we picked to come back to is such a good one. And it's such a delightful story to read that it was possible to totally dive in and get this podcast ready and bring ourselves up to date with it because who wouldn't want to totally immerse themselves in the world of Brideshead Revisited?
1: It is such a great book.
0: So this is your first time reading it, B? Yeah,
1: it was. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it was strange because I'd had like a couple of introductions to the beginning chapters, mm-hmm. like we'd watched the first couple of episodes of the tv series yeah as an audiobook i listened to the first couple of chap like yeah. you know maybe third like quarter to a third of the book yeah um but then to actually go and read the whole thing mm-hmm. was amazing and it's such a like complex interesting web of characters mm-hmm. and it takes you places that you don't expect yeah I found it really really fascinating and just really interesting from a faith perspective as well as like an art perspective and a um, just general people perspective
0: and a prose perspective it's so well written oh beautiful and he's so funny we're gonna come back to Evelyn Waugh's style in a little bit but yeah it's hysterical and funny and the characters like I just feel like the way he comes up with and then renders the characters in his book is so fascinating to me like I don't even know where like where in his mind these kinds of characters come from but they're wonderful and so I think what we're gonna do at the very start we're gonna give you a little bit of background on both Evelyn Waugh as the writer behind this story and then also a summary of the book but the thing that we kind of wanted to start with is uh, something I even noticed for myself my dad always said that his favorite tv series or like kind of filmmaking in tv format ever was the Brideshead Revisited series from the 80s and I remember being younger and reading I think the back of the box and being like I have no idea why my dad would be interested in this. I have no idea really why anyone is interested in this. For some reason I don't know what it was but the like you know small paragraph description just didn't sell it to me. I couldn't latch on to what people were seeing in this book and I think in some level you can't you almost can't force that moment for people sometimes that like they have to be ready to come to it in their own time like I remember my um like a friend of the family giving me something on Pride and Prejudice and for some reason like I I can't understand why I wasn't ready to come to it at that age but I remember reading this sort of I don't know whether it was an abbreviated version or something but I just didn't get it and I wasn't ready for it and I was definitely the same with Brideshead Revisited but because of that I just want to take some time to actually sell it to, to listeners just to actually give them the chance to see whether they would be interested in this or not.
1: Yeah, and I don't think that's even just an age thing, but a yeah. mood thing as yeah. well. Um, that I think when we just relate it to childhood, we can be like, well, I should be old enough to read that now. I don't have any excuse. Yeah. But that it is a mood thing and it's a glorious summer read. Yeah. It is still, I think, a good autumn read as well. Yeah. Um.
0: So And it's better read than not read. Yes, so there if, is that, definitely. So if you're saying, oh, maybe I'll read it next summer, just read it and you can reread it next summer, I promise. It's worth the rereading too. Yeah. I've had, like For this
1: podcast, obviously, I've been able to go back and reread at least bits of it. And mm. it's so nice to see... It, it's so interesting to see the story again from the perspective of the end of it because the end of it does change things. Mm-hmm. And that's part of our spoiler alert that we'll bring up later but um yeah that is like it was also also definitely worth rereading
0: yeah well actually maybe we can turn to the spoiler alert now which is to say that uh the way we're going to approach this is to give a kind of like I said on some level you're always going to have to spoil some of the book to give any kind of insight onto it um so I think in the first half our idea is to try and give a section of the podcast which talks about the first part of the book which as you can expect isn't really uh, a spoiler and when we say spoilers I do think sometimes that term gets a bit overused like mm. like just knowing the plot of a book is not necessarily like the worst thing that can happen before especially a classic novel but at the same time there are some revelations towards the end of this book that are very impactful in the way that like the story takes a turn or or reveals something and so I we don't want to be flippant about that either so what we're going to do is that there will be some light spoilers at the start and then as we go through we're going to move to like a slightly different section and we'll give a heads up about that as well so if you aren't sure whether you're interested in it if you're not sure whether Bride's head is for you. You can keep listening and don't worry you're not going to hear anything that if it does pique your interest, you're not going to be like, Oh, shucks, I wish I hadn't heard that about it because I was just getting interested in it. um yeah,
1: yeah, exactly' because I think at least for me, that knowledge of at least part of the book really helps me to get into it and get through it mm-hmm. um because like with a lot of these classic novels, as we said, I think we've talked about before that it's quite easy to read a couple of chapters and wonder why you should care.
0: Yeah, exactly. And to give that taster, to give that like reason to care, that reason to invest, that general but not totally um, mapped out trajectory, that you have some idea of the destination of where this strange story is going, can actually help give you momentum to keep going forward.
1: Eventually, you and Aoife gave that to me, so now we'll give it to everyone else.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to share head with so many people. And like, as Phoebe just mentioned, our friend Aoife has been um, a great source of discussion on this. It's such a great book to discuss. There's all kinds of layers. One of the things I will say about it is is that in a lot of elements of the characters, he doesn't give clear answers, clear mm. motivations, clear... Um, points of character to explain away people's actions. I think it's much more realistic than that by giving you this this sneaking sense of something is off or this general sense that this is what's happening but not always a concrete answer as to why people are acting in certain ways and it's, I think that's really beautiful.
1: That what you pick up from
0: it in terms of
1: the character's reasoning is hinged on two lines of somebody else's conversation.
0: And that person you know? never tells the truth anyway so you're like peering through it, what what they're thinking as well and and all of these great things. So as as you can guess, I have a huge respect for the writing in this book. I think it's beautifully written. And so it's probably worth saying something a little bit about its author Evelyn Waugh. He's kind of an interesting character. He's quite a complex person. He was born in 1903 and he wrote a lot of things he wrote, novels, biographies, travel books he was a journalist a book reviewer just one of these people who spent their lives writing his most famous works uh, in his in the early part of his writing he writes these satires as i mentioned he is hysterically funny and brideshead is it, he's, it's kind of in the middle between all of his writings it kind of stands at a midpoint which is quite fitting in some ways and it is very funny but It has a lot of kind of deeper themes and his earlier work, that's not to say it doesn't have important themes in it, but like the point is the satire a bit more. I read another one of his books which I adore called Scoop, which is hysterically funny to me. So his early satires include some of the ones you might have heard of are Decline of Fall, A Handful of Dust, Vile Bodies. Um, And then like I said, he goes on to write Brideshead Revisited in 1945. And then after that he writes Again there's still funny but more serious novels. I think the most famous is his second world war trilogy Sword of Honor and he's kind of recognized as one of these great prose stylists. Like he's not just telling you a story he is crafting the language of telling you a story. So, he in his life he was a schoolmaster for a little while and I think an art teacher, and then he became a full-time writer. He also served in the British armed forces throughout the Second World War. What you will find is while all of his work is fictional, he is very much drawing from first-hand experience of a lot of things. So, he's not just totally coming up with it from his head. It's a version of the world that he has encountered himself. After his first failed marriage, he converted to Catholicism in 1930. So this was about um, 15 years before Brideshead Revisited, which is a story about Catholicism in a big way, is released. He got an annulment from his first wife and went on to get married again and had seven children, one of whom died in infancy, but the the other six grew up. And uh, as a person, he has... A kind of interesting reputation he's actually known for being quite nasty, curmudgeonly, kind of difficult to deal with uh there's a I have a quote here from a writer called James Lee's Milne.
1: no relation to um a
0: a, a. Milne I don't know <laughs> maybe he is uh, but he says he was the the nastiest tempered man in England, but it, it's kind of interesting like i I wonder there's a sense that like it was a certain way, and if you knew him, it wasn't he wasn't so abrasive because he has this really wide circle of very devoted friends like earnestly devoted friends they're not just hangers on and he has uh, like she. The, there's a, a lot of occasions in his life that you can point to his immense generosity and immense kindness uh, he was friends with uh, the writer Nancy Mitford who once asked him how he reconciled his often objectionable conduct with being a Christian and Waugh replied that were he not a Christian he would be even more horrible <laughs> (laughs)
1: I think that's great. (laughs) I think that also touches on something that's really interesting in Brideshead. Yeah. Which is that same tension of characters that are not just wholly good or wholly bad. Mm -hmm. um, That you can have people that are very difficult to deal with, Mm -hmm. but
0: are actually really trying. Yeah. You know? Or have this underlying goodness, or if you have if you have the ability to approach this person in the right way, you get the prism of how they're acting and how it makes sense from their perspective. I agree, yeah. Yeah. So I think I've given the the summary, which is a, it's a tricky task for Brideshead because, like I said, so much of it is character and even prose that the plot is... It's a difficult one to sum up in some ways.
1: Yeah, and also, at, at the moment, we're not giving you spoilers, so we're just giving you the introductory summary. Um... And I think what you said about it being funny is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the audiobook is really good yes. for that. And kind of gives you the voices of the characters, which I found really helpful.
0: Yeah, the audiobook, at least on Audible, is read by Jeremy Irons, who is not only just fantastic in and of himself, but he plays the main character in the 1980s ITV version. So it the two line up very well. He gives the characters this kind of same intonation as they get in the tv series so the two feel like and the tv series is a very kind of careful reproduction of the the book in a way that it's not always possible to do with other books but they they very much like painfully put stuff on screen that is just like taken from the book um so yeah it gives you that kind of vocal world of it maybe at this age, i should flag that i i do have a tendency when i quote brideshead to to put on that voice just because Jeremy Irons voice is so clear in my head when he says those lines and it's, I, I, it's really maybe inappropriate because I'm not British and I don't have a British accent but please excuse me if you, you hear me um, maybe going into that a little bit.
1: And you know I'll read out half the quotes in my half British accent as well <laughs> so you'll get a, an amalgamation of that. Yes, I think also, in terms of the humour, it's important to say that those kind of come in sweeps. Mm -hmm. Like, I think to say it's hysterically funny, and then you have like long chapters where it's actually quite serious and quite in depth, Mm -hmm. and you're like, what are you girls talking about? Yeah. Um, I think it's more that there's actually particular sections that are like laugh out loud funny. And
0: particular characters. Like Charles Ryder, who's the main character as we're about to hear, his father and his interactions with his father. Like, I really encourage you if you're reading this, make sure you read every one of those lines as being deliberately extremely funny. Mm -hmm. Um, I love it. There's another character called Anthony Blanche who's, he's funny but he's less he has an almost sinister presence in the story and but the way he talks is so funny and so interesting and yeah definitely um the kind of bringing in that humor but there is humor scattered throughout especially if you're on the lookout for it but you're right that there's there's different kind of mood shifts throughout the story
1: yeah I'll give the summary then? Yeah. So the novel begins with a prologue in England in the midst of World War II. Charles Ryder, the first-person narrator of the story, arrives with the army to this grand country house called Brideshead. As you might expect, the tone is grey and sombre, with the beautiful house and the grounds now turned over to the army. Charles reveals that he knows the house well. From there we're swept back to the glamour of the 1920s, when Charles was at Oxford. The first few chapters are full of beauty and humour, the warmth of summer and the languor of youth. At the start, the story centres on Sebastian Flight, the younger son of the Marchmain family, who own this fabulous house. Unusually for the time, they are Roman Catholic through the instigation of Lady Marchmain, Lord Marchmain having converted when he married her. However, he has since abandoned the faith and lives abroad with his mistress, and the four children have varying relationships with the church. Sebastian is this precocious adolescent, full of charming eccentricities and leading a hedonistic lifestyle which enchants Charles. As Charles is drawn further into the family, the cracks begin to show in this beautiful veneer. Sebastian seems unable to find happiness or peace among his family and becomes an alcoholic, ultimately causing rifts between himself and his family and even Charles. From there, the story takes a gloomier tone from those glorious summer days of of the start. We follow Charles's life as it continues to interweave with that of the flights. We see their struggles and failures and ultimately how faith and grace operate in their lives, offering them opportunities to draw closer to God.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really interesting that the theme of grace in the book which is something we're going to cut will become a, a prominent part of our discussion but I think it's worth noting that Waugh himself in the preface to the book he says its theme is the operation of divine grace on a group of diverse but closely connected characters which is interesting because the book is framed as Charles's memoirs in fact, the subtitle to it is The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder. And so Charles himself says his theme is memory, but the author himself is putting it in and saying, actually, the theme is grace. Yeah. Which also goes, like I said, some way into saying that there's a, there's a lot of kind of unreliable narrators in this story. You can't take everyone at face value.
1: Or equally, the theme is the interaction between sacred and profane as yeah. well. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And so for the first part of our discussion, which, like I said, should be open and and spoiler-free-ish, is this beginning few chapters, which, like we've said, is this kind of glorious, sunny hedonistic gluttonous. I think that's an important word that War himself uses, that he wrote this book when there was a lot of rationing on and he had no food, (laughs) that or at least the standard of food that he wanted. So he wrote this book that's just full of all of these descriptions of food and alcohol and lounging around in the sunshine. Um, And it's so much so that he actually had to go back in and like excise them after the first publication because he was like, that is actually too much. (laughs) I
1: find that hilarious.
0: (laughs) But as much as that bit is fun to read and like who doesn't love diving into a sort of glamorous like you said 1920s wonderful lifestyle the opening of the book is actually doing something on a thematic level that is very clever because what we're doing is we're entering into the world from sebastian flight's point of view so especially in the first half and like we said we'll come to the second half but the first half is very much centered on Sebastian flight and it functions almost like a Holmes and Watson that like Charles is reporting on Sebastian's life rather than Charles being the main character.
1: Yeah and Sebastian is kind of the instigator of all the drama mm-hmm. and Charles is very much the hanger
0: on. Absolutely and so it's a quote that's in the book but the first part of the book is almost this education and beauty because Sebastian is this character from Oxford who everyone's looking at. He goes around. He's got all these eccentricities. He's got this teddy bear called Aloysius who he has a, a hairbrush with his name engraved on it to spank him when he's in bad moods. And he...
1: threatened him with a spanking. That's it.
0: <laughs> and, you know, he, he's full of this... Like, he's very rich and he's doing all of these kind of ridiculous things. Um, and Charles is very... Um, like we said, enchanted by all of this. He's enchanted by Sebastian himself, but also by the lifestyle around him. He comes from this very dour, middle-class, unloving, <laughs> essentially kind of a family dynamic. Um, and this is a world of splendor. But this the world of splendor is actually going to some of the Catholic themes in this because it, it presents essentially kind of a way of beauty, but ultimately a way of beauty that's misdirected because there's this this tension in sebastian's life of how to interact with his faith
1: yeah and also like with that charles is coming at it from this like agnostic perspective of having his family having abandoned any practice of the faith really mm-hmm. and he's kind of baffled by all like by all of this faith and i think that's a really interesting thing for us to read as Catholics. As Catholics.
0: Because I will say this book is very popular with people from all walks of life. So it isn't just the type of book that Catholics are interested in. But as Catholics reading it, it does give it a, a particular kind of interest in this like approach of coming at it from who are these crazy Catholics?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So there's this wonderful bit where Charles and Sebastian, they're at Bride's Head over the summer together and... Uh, the topic of religion comes up. And so Charles begins by saying, I suppose they try and make you believe an awful lot of nonsense. And Sebastian replies, Is it nonsense? I wish it were. It sometimes sounds terribly sensible to me. But my dear Sebastian, you can't seriously believe it all, can't I? I mean about Christmas and the star and the three kings and the ox and the ass. Oh yes, I believe that. It's a lovely idea. But you can't believe things because they're a lovely idea. But I do. That's how I believe. And there's just this such characteristic thing of Sebastian of like this and we're we're going to dive into this theme of childlikeness and childishness but that like this childish obstinacy that like I'm going to believe something because it's nice and he does all of these things because like almost on a whim of how they fit into his aesthetic of life almost Um, but it is there's something to me so charming and we're going to talk about how it isn't it isn't the fullness of the truth but there's something so charming to me about that being enough that the the star and the three kings and the ox and the ass, they're a lovely idea. So of course I believe in it.
1: Yeah, there's something so central to that kind of gut instinct of, but of course it's lovely. Of course I believe it. Yeah. And like, obviously, I think part of how Sebastian fails is that he fails to take it further than that. Mm-hmm. But the, the grain of the, that's how I believe it. Mm-hmm is actually something that we should also hold on to.
0: Yeah, because there is something in the fact that Christ came to us in this story that to us, if you really believe in it and enter into it, you see it as the greatest story in the world. And and of course, we believe that story is true. It's not a fictional story to us. But... It's still a story that we tell, and we believe it is the loveliest story. Um, It's also the most sorrowful story, it's the most serious story, it's the most important story, but there is this beauty in this story that does attract. And to Sebastian's sensibility, who's always kind of looking for beauty, or uh, enjoying the pleasures of life, that, that he does actually respond to it. And the thing that I find interesting is that the start of this novel Like we said, it does draw Charles into it, but it also draws us as readers into this way because we totally dive into this really glamorous world and we just want to stay there like the novel becomes more complex and in some ways more serious and more dour and the bit that we all want to reread or re re-watch in the series is those opening moments of like all of the glorious and splendor and we just want to stay in this lovely happy place um, and as we see as it goes on you kind of have to leave that behind but there is something in like immersing ourselves in this beautiful space.
1: Yeah, there's this beautiful line about finding the low door and it's hidden that leads you to the enchanted garden.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. It says, um, But I was in search of love in those days and I went full of curiosity and the faint, unrecognised apprehension that here at last... I should find that low door in the wall which others I knew had found before me which opened on an enclosed and enchanted garden which was somewhere not overlooked by any window in the heart of that grey city. And of course, at the start, you have these, well, in some ways, you have three great locations. You have Brideshead itself. You also have these amazing descriptions of Oxford. And then quite a short way into the book, you have this amazing description of Venice. So you have these places of just great beauty. And I want to read the like introductions to some of these places, just because I think it is important to convey how um, seductive this this kind of immersion in beauty is.
1: Yeah, there's such a sense of place to this novel. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a reason why it's called Brideshead.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so the opening lines by Oxford says, Oxford in those days was still a city of aquatint. In her spacious and quiet streets, men walked and spoke as they had done in Newman's day, her autumnal mists, her grey springtime and the rare glory of her summer days, such as that day, when the chestnut was in flower and the bells rang out high and clear over her gables and cupolas, exhaled the soft airs of centuries of youth. It was this cloistral hush which gave our laughter its resonance and carried it still joyously over the intervening clamour. And so it has this great part in Oxford and then this they go to Brideshead uh, the the house of Brideshead many times but this first time Sebastian takes Charles to see the house when none of his family are there, just to show him the house.
1: Yeah, I think this must be the most, like, glorious summer description.
0: Absolutely. So on the way, they stop on the side of the road and eat the strawberries and drink the champagne. And it's just before he sees Bride's head for the first time. But it's almost like that's almost the most important moment was this, like, moment before they get there.
1: On a sheep-cropped knoll under a clump of elms, we ate the strawberries and drank the wine, as Sebastian promised. They were delicious together, and we lit fat Turkish cigarettes and lay on our backs, Sebastian's eyes on the leaves above him, mine on his profile, while the blue-grey smoke rose, untroubled by any wind, to the blue-green shadows of the foliage, and the sweet scent of tobacco merged with the sweet summer scent around us and the fumes of the sweet golden wine seem to lift us a finger's breath above the turf and hold us suspended.
0: Oh, Oh. yeah. It's amazing. I'm
1: amazed that even war could use the word sweet Mm -hmm. so many times and not have it sound like...
0: What is he doing? What is he doing? Yeah. And so... As you can see, this this novel, and especially in the first part, it really establishes like beauty as as a serious thing. Um, and what ends up happening is Charles becomes an artist, and it, it's important that he becomes an artist. He's the one observing the beauty and trying to record it and capture it. And it's kind of his his motivating force. But at the same time, as you can see here, it's a lot of lounging around and eating, eating sweets. And essentially, you know, like this, I think it it says uh, there's a quote, which I wish I pulled out now, which is talking about how it was almost childish. But our our sins were high in the catalogue of moral sins that like it was like this version of childhood. But you had access to alcohol and all of these other things that it was this. Like a summer's day on a on a school holiday, you know.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting juxtaposition of the adult things, to of like cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah. With that childish, like sit under a tree, mm-hmm. go on a random expedition. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I think is a very charming. Yeah. And kind of. Like we're not supposed to entirely like say, oh, that's right that they're doing it, Mm -hmm. Um, but you can also see the joy of it, yeah, and how that like how that kind of adolescent indulgence is at least joyful Mm -hmm. in a way that some other things are not.
0: Yeah, that there was something in there that's aspiring to true joy and true beauty and when we're Catholic and we see those things oriented to God, those are the things that do lead us to God. Now, as we see, they're slightly, they're off, off center. They're, they're directing in kind of the wrong way. But he says after his summer at Brideshead, he says, perhaps in the mansions of Limbo, the heroes enjoy some such compensation for their loss of the beatific vision. Perhaps the beatific vision itself has some remote kinship with this lowly experience. I, at any rate, believed myself very near heaven during those languid days at Brideshead. The other thing about it is that it's not just laying around. He actually starts painting there and he paints the walls in one of the, the rooms with these amazing uh, watercolours. And this is all very like in, instructive in his journey in becoming an artist. Mm, um,
1: he sketches a complicated fountain.
0: That's it. Yeah. yeah. But the, while those are all kind of the serious side of it, this childishness is pervading and it is adding this note to it that isn't that is slightly off-kilter like I was saying about Sebastian and his moods there's a a great quote which is Sebastian's life was governed by a code of such imperatives I must have pillar box red pyjamas I have to stay in bed until the sun works round to the windows I've absolutely got to drink champagne tonight
1: (laughs) yeah there's such a like strange childishness to that
0: and like we said some of it's quite charming and we'll come back to that word charming Um, I mean the teddy bear (laughs) the teddy bear exactly but it's actually these things that when we see the novel have kind of seeds in in sebastian's unhappiness and the things that ultimately lead him to be quite unhappy because there is this rejection to go further than his own childhood
1: yeah like we almost see it with um charles trying to spend more time with the beauty and um sebastian say like you know charles asking questions about it and sebastian saying oh charles don't be such a tourist what does it matter when it was built if it's pretty and i think there's a there's a truth in that like it doesn't matter how old something is if it's beautiful Mm -hmm. but there's also a lack of depth to it that the interest in the thing should be more encompassing Mm -hmm. um, and allow you to actually like the finding out more about it should enhance your experience of the beauty of it
0: yeah and because the if it's pretty is that it gives me pleasure and if you're never willing to go beyond what gives you pleasure then you are staying in this kind of childlike state which is hard to reconcile with what what the real world quote the real world but like the, the world of adults calls of you, but more importantly what the world of faith calls of you.
1: Yeah, like in terms of that like world of faith, like he does just hold on to that superficiality of it. Um, like he's in love with his own childhood and it makes him really unhappy in the end. Like he's obsessed with his teddy bear, as we mentioned. He's also obsessed with his nanny. Like
0: mm-hmm. the reason
1: why they're going to Brideshead in the first like opening section is to visit Nanny. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also childish enough to like run away before he has to have tea with his sister. Yeah, There's a great impetuousness to that that refuses to take anything else with what he wants. Mm. Like, he wants to see Nanny. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to see his sister or do any of the things that should actually be encompassed within like turning up somewhere and finding out that somebody's there that you didn't expect to be there
0: yeah yeah so there's this sense of him like I said only wanting wanting the pleasure aspect mm-hmm. of it I think at one point he says happiness is all I want yeah and so there's these moments in it so his teddy bear I think we meant, mentioned <laughs> that teddy bear's name is Aloysius but he has this quote about saying if it could only be like this always always summer always always alone, the fruit always ripe, and aloicious in a good temper. (laughs) (laughs) Uh.
1: And is that not his own way of saying me in a good temper? Yeah. Like that kind of almost like annoyed with the ups and downs of his own mood swings.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: That he's like expects the glory of everything to be perfect
0: yeah like there's a there was a quote in faith and culture an article they had called a-, a twitch upon the thread grace and Brideshead revisited where he says sebastian in the pursuit of personal happiness is attempting to steal his own life which he knows belongs to god and it is this very pursuit of happiness that rather quickly brings misery to a head um And I think one of the ways this childishness gets him in trouble pretty quickly is the way that he's possessive of Charles. And some of it is justified. I think when you see the family dynamics, you do see a kind of overbearingness of the family trying to be involved in every part of his life. But at the same time, there is a childishness that's like, it's mine, I won't share it, I don't want anybody else to be involved in this friendship, I just want him all to myself, I don't want him to like you more than he likes me, Um, which is very childish and shows the limitations of his love for Charles.
1: Yeah, he gets really annoyed with Charles for even asking questions about his family.
0: Yeah, It, it puts a rift between the two friends because then sebastian gets this paranoia that charles is really on their side and that when he's ashamed of his drinking that actually charles is in cahoots with his family to be sort of tut-tutting him and it's not really true like his charles is getting on well with the family but he's he he says it at one point sebastian contra mundi like against the together against the world you know yeah he
1: takes sebastian's side against his family when it's called four yeah and yet, Sebastian never even seems to appreciate that either. Yeah. Like, I think it's quite striking that he let, he's let his jealousy kind of eat into that to an extent that he can't even separate the two.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's this really sad moment, I think it's at the Christmas section, where it's like a... Like, in some ways, it should be pretty peaceful. I think Charles calls it a kind of tranquil time. But he has this great line where he just says, "'Sebastian, in this time, took fright.'" And there's this sense of, like, a um, breaking moment of panic in his own drinking.
1: Yeah, I love the, uh, this section of, um, he counted among the intruders his own consciousness and all claims of human affection. His days in Arcadia were numbered. For in this, to me, tranquil time, Sebastian took fright. I knew him well in that mood of alertness and suspicion, like a deer suddenly lifting its head at a, the far note of the hunt. I had seen him grow wary at the thought of his family or his religion. Now I found I too was suspect. He did not fail in his love, but he lost his joy of it, for I was no longer part of his solitude. As my intimacy with his family grew, I became part of the world which he sought to escape. I became one of the bonds which held him. That was the part for which his mother, in all our little talks, was seeking to fit me.
0: Mm.
1: And we're not going to be able to talk about the mother much in this, yeah. But she is such an interesting character, fascinating. Um, and Charles is sort of enjoying talking to her about the faith and about Catholicism. But there's also like her attempts to lure him into taking charge of Sebastian, mm. um, which is also like in terms of the Sebastian's childishness. Part of his childishness comes from his family's inability to like force him to grow up.
0: Yeah. He's, he's Peter Pan. There was an article that I read about the children's literature elements in Brideshead. So we've already had the low door, which is very much the secret garden. Um, his mother explicitly references the Alice in Wonderland nature of extraordinary things happening in the Gospels. And then we just have this sense of like the boy who wouldn't grow up with Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And... It's always such a it's such a painful part to read about is Sebastian's alcoholism because in some ways you do feel very stuck in how to help him. And again, like I said, war doesn't always give clear answers. I think in real life, that's the experience of people with addictions, that there aren't clear answers and there's not a clear way to get out of things and all of this. But that, yeah, there's that sense of, of course, his family want to have him looked out for, but that kind of constant observation is the thing that's driving him mad at the same time, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating kind of tension between trying to do your best for someone that you love and having to let them go their own way and make mistakes.
0: Yeah, which is exactly what's talked about later in the novel of the twitch upon the thread, which comes from the Chesterton story of Father Brown of like letting the thief run all the way around the world. And then with the a twitch of the thread drawing him back in. It is heartbreaking and and it's interesting how he draws the distinction between his own use of drink and Sebastian's. He has the quote that says, It was during this term that I began to realise that Sebastian was a drunkard, in quite a different sense to myself. I got drunk often, but through an excess of high spirits, in the love of the moment and the wish to prolong and enhance it, Sebastian drank to escape. As we together grew older and more serious, I drank less, he more.
1: Such a sad section. Mm. It's sort of like the leaves turning of autumn. Yeah. Of like, you start to see everything falling apart.
0: Yeah. And you see, and like we said, we're just about to move into the slightly more spoilerish ish section. Um, but you see a moment with Sebastian where he's having an interaction where he's kind of looking after quite... Uh, an odd and down on his luck kind of character um and he says to Charles then he added what if I had paid more attention should have given me the key I lacked at the time I heard and remembered it without taking notice you know Charles he said it's rather a pleasant change when all your life you've had people looking after you to have someone to look after yourself only of course it has to be someone pretty hopeless to need looking after by me and I think that's the key: is that this this pursuit of beauty and pleasure and happiness fails because it asks you only to look to yourself,
1: and because yeah, it's devoid of any responsibility or sacrifice, or like going out to the other, mm-hmm. or even in a way a willingness to share that beauty.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a closed-off sense to it, you know? Yeah. That The sense that the low door excludes other people, that you are just creating your little world for yourself. And, yet yeah, that actually what is needed is that ability to sacrifice for others. It's the combination of, like, the desire for happiness, the desire to possess, again, that, like, holding on to instead of sacrificing. There's a quote from... I think it was in Church Life Journal, uh, Brideshead Revisited During Lent. So there's another time of year that you can read Brideshead. Is that
1: not every time <laughs> of year?
0: <laughs> um Even in the beginning of their love in Arcadia, Sebastian cannot help but possess Charles. When Charles asks why he does not want him to meet his family, Sebastian answers, "'They're so madly charming. All my life they've been taking things away from me. If they once got hold of you with their charm, they'd make you their friend and not mine, and I won't let them.'" As Lady Marchmain attempts to draw Charles in, Sebastian's possession intensifies until it ultimately destroys the relationship. There's that destructive quality to the need to hold on to, like, my toys, you know?
1: Yeah, and there's this kind of, like, throwing away Mm. of that friendship when the possession no longer holds. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, It's almost not that he... Like, he's holding tighter, but then if that's failing, he's not even holding on to what he does still
0: have. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think at this point, we're going to move to... If if you're interested in head, if this has piqued your interest, maybe go away and listen to it or read it or even watch the TV series. Um, but in this section, especially Well of course you're free to listen to it if you don't mind being spoiled um and then also maybe those who have who already know the story as well won't be worried about hearing some of the the details in it
1: yeah our devoted fans who read it over the summer if anyone did do tell us
0: yeah i was about to say i was about to take the other tact and say of course everyone read it over the summer after we told them to (laughs) because the next part i want to talk about is charles as undergoing his own kind of um, journey in this beauty because he's drawn in. and
1: Yeah, and almost this is part of the spoiler that it feels at the start that Sebastian is the main character, mm-hmm. but really Charles as the narrator is also the main character of the
0: story. And in fact, he steps up and essentially Sebastian's role fades away. Yeah. And you know, Charles becomes his own main character rather than just idolising this other person. Um, And he becomes, as we've said, an artist. Um, So I have a quote here, which is from near the start of the book, from this character, Anthony Blanche, who's this very flamboyant and camp and... slightly sinister and hard to get a hold of character are you going to do the accent with the stutter oh i i don't know we'll see if it comes out <laughs> um, but he says you see my dear charles you are that very rare thing an artist oh yes you must not look bashful behind that cold English phlegmatic exterior. You are an artist. I have seen those little drawings you keep hidden away in your room. They are exquisite, and you my dear, if you will understand me, are not exquisite. I am. Sebastian, in a kind of way, is exquisite. But the artist is an eternal type. Solid, purposeful, observant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is again goes to this point of that he is he is not embodying it in in himself he is looking to it in other people
1: yeah i love that description of almost that you have to be if you're so focused on being the like exquisite yourself you can't also like observe it and convey it to others
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and so as we've mentioned he goes through this this part in the book where he dives into it in bride's so maybe phoebe you want to read out that section
1: it was an aesthetic education to live within those walls to wander from room to room from the soanesque library to the chinese drawing room adazzled with gilt pagodas and nodding mandarins painted paper and chippendale fretwork from the pompeian parlor to the great tapestry hung hall which stood unchanged as it had been designed 250 years before, to sit hour after hour in the shade looking out on the terrace.
0: Mm, beautiful.
1: I love that just description of needing to spend so much time around beauty to appreciate it.
0: Yeah, but I think the other thing is that it's interesting because the family it's themselves don't seem to appreciate mm. it. Um, the elder brother, who's called Bridey, because he gets the, the title of Brideshead, um, he asks Ryder, you know, he, they're talking about the chap and he says, you're an artist, Ryder, what do you think of it aesthetically? And is it, you know, is it good art? Because he can't tell himself. And uh, Charles kind of tries to give this sort of half answer where he says, um, well, I... I think it's a remarkable example of its period. Probably in eighty years it will be greatly admired. And Bridey gives this very like logical response where he's like, But surely it can't be good in it it can't be good twenty years ago and good in eighty years and not good now. Um well maybe it, it may be good now. All I mean is I don't happen to like it much. Is there a difference between liking a thing and thinking it good? Um, which is kind of an interesting. It comes from quite a bullish character, but it is quite an interesting point on like the the role of beauty in the novel. Like, is it yeah. good just because you like it? And it
1: does get brought up as like an interesting theological point later. That, yeah, that um, is, is like. Well, you were actually the one on the sound theological point, even though I'm a Catholic one.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, which is quite funny.
0: Yeah, and um, so... But yeah,
1: there is that sense in which the family don't really appreciate it to the same extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they've kind of gone the other sense of being so surrounded by all this beauty that it has become nothing to them.
0: It comes into this thing where the question is whether... Charles is really attracted to beauty, and if we're talking about it on a theological level, the beauty should lead him to God. And he does love beauty, but he's being distracted by what Anthony Blanche brings up as this plight of charm. And charm, it's a very enigmatic word used because it's used about people in the novel, um, but it's also used about like the the kind of aesthetic approach and it's this superficiality this this willingness to exist only on the surface level of like like saying that well it's pretty so what else matters you know yeah
1: it's also used in terms of charles's drawings which are of great country houses yeah um i I think you can kind of picture that like the charm of the english landscape Mm
0: -hmm. idea
1: But yeah, then it's also tied to like the personality of Sebastian or um, Lady Marchmain.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The quote that that kind of encapsulates this is Anthony Blanche says, Charm is the great English plight. It does not exist outside these damp islands. It spots and kills anything it touches. It kills love. It kills art. I greatly fear my dear Charles it has killed you and yeah it's almost like he portrays it like a mold it spots and kills anything and in some ways like we said Anthony is an interesting character he's not really telling the truth in some ways he would be pushing you get the sense that he would be pushing Charles towards more things like quite explicit or or like almost pornographic images he has this word pictures which feels like it feels more like like he, he calls he, he he runs to find Charles's new exhibit which has promised to be full of unhealthy pictures um, and is disappointed when he doesn't find it and some level he's disappointed because what we're going to come back to is is that he sees that Charles has failed to really engage with the emotion necessary for an artist But there's also this underlying sense that I think he was looking for something quite provocative and in your face and and salacious, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting example of a really true insight Mm. from a character who is, like, clouded in wickedness. Yeah. Um, Like, there's all these stories about him having, like, fought a duel and seduced so like mistress and like living this glamorous life in the Mediterranean yeah um and it is interesting that he sp- makes it a specifically English thing mm-hmm. we're not quite sure why but I think it at least helps to encapsulate what he means by charm
0: yeah so at this point in the novel uh, initially Charles becomes famous as an artist like Phoebe said for painting essentially these country houses and it's so funny because he gives the names of his like best-selling art books and they're all these really kind of parochial names they're like generic titles riders country seats, riders English homes, riders village and provincial architecture and then he tries to actually get away from his own addiction to this almost like tweeness by going to Latin America and painting these jungle scenes um, where he says he wanted to search for the wild lands where man had deserted his posts and the jungle was creeping back into its old strongholds but this is almost even more inauthentic like he doesn't tap into emotion he essentially paints english country seats except that it's transposed onto the jungle because what. Anthony Blanche does is he shows up and goes he he makes this incredible joke about saying where did you find this greenery it was it in the hothouses of Trent and Tring so like the idea that he was painting these jungle scenes from a greenhouse in some like really <laughs> like uh, parochial town
1: yeah that he's managed to make it feel like a greenhouse even when he was in the jungle
0: yeah and he compares it to a trick of Sebastian's of like painting a small kitten as a tiger. And in the end, he calls them creamy English charm playing tigers, which it just goes to the fact that it's really important to the novel that Charles fails as an artist, like he has talent, he has this spark in him, which is true talent, but at the same time, he never actually fully realizes his potential. But actually, war kind of almost makes this a positive thing because it ends up leading him to true beauty. Like, he has to abandon this false sense of beauty in order to approach God.
1: Yeah, he's doing well as an artist, Mm -hmm. like, socially. Yeah. But with a kind of superficiality to it.
0: Yeah, because ultimately what he needs is religion, and I think it's telling that when he describes his own religion, he describes his thought of it as, like, being ornamental. He says, Religion was a hobby which some people professed and others did not. At best, it was slightly ornamental. At the worst, it was the province of complexes and inhibitions, catchwords of the decades, and of the intolerance, hypocrisy, and sheer stupidity attributed to it for centuries. But really what's happening is, is his own beauty is ornamental. In order to to get closer to God, he has to cast off what is actually an ornamental love of beauty, that it doesn't actually go any deeper than that.
1: Yeah, it's the trappings of charm and not the truth of beauty, like the true beauty of it.
0: Yeah, there's a great line in an article called The Rejection of Beauty in Wars, Brideshead Revisited, where the writer says, Waugh implicitly argues that Charles's failure as an artist is fortunate, a felix culpa, because too great an adherence to beauty is the very thing keeping him from God. Charles's continual references to art, his propensity to see people as aesthetic figures, Julia, for instance, that's the sister, he describes as uh, having full quattrocento loveliness. These reinforce Wall's position that Charles's aesthetic point of view leads him to fail spiritually and morally. So I think this brings us to where the novel leads the characters, which is ultimately Julia, I think, becomes this much more important character towards the end of the novel.
1: Yeah, so Sebastian's older sister, mm-hmm. Julia, who is... Described in the beginning as being very like him, Mm -hmm. is kind of like becomes the next main character, like main character to Charles. Yeah. And they're on a boat back from America after um, he's been in Brazil and end up falling in love and having this grand affair.
0: But importantly, both of them are married. Yes. And so. They set about getting divorces, but it's this... So, Julia has in, has married this, I think... Is he American or Canadian? Uh, Whichever. Canadian, I think. Yeah, I think Canadian businessman who... They describe him as being half-human, that he's just... He's, he's this man with no emotion he's just purely business and ultimately he's also very unfaithful and he just doesn't have he just was looking for status and he didn't really understand what he wanted but there's a hilarious section where he converts to Catholicism so that they can have their, their proper wedding um, which doesn't come off in the end because it turns out he was already married But and
1: cannot comprehend why him already being married is a
0: problem yeah exactly
1: uh, he's described as half a man that's it um and in some ways Charles is also married to a woman very like that mm. in that she's also been unfaithful she's also like married him for status mm-hmm. there's a, like there's a deep superficiality to both of those marriages yeah and yet now like i think one of the really interesting things about the novel is it doesn't just allow um Charles and Julia to to end those marriages and live out a happily ever after. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because like they are both really unhappy in those.
0: Yep. <laughs> but it is still not right for them to go off and have an affair together. Absolutely. And so what ends up happening is that um Lady Marchmain has passed away quite a few years before. And so at long last, Lord Marchmain, who's been, as we mentioned at the start, abroad with his mistress in Italy for all of this time, comes back to the the family home, essentially to die. And he brings his mistress with him and he is kind of set up in the house and they they watch him die. And at the very end, um, the the children start intervening and trying to organise a priest to come in and he doesn't want the priest, he's been out of the church for all this time and Charles is really kind of aghast at this idea of like a forced deathbed conversion. But in the end, what he sees is what can only be interpreted as a genuine moment of repentance and acceptance of the faith right at the end of Lord Marchmain's life.
1: It's such a beautiful scene, it's so well crafted. It is
0: honestly just soul-rocking. And, um, Phoebe, do you want to read... It's a, it, it's a slightly longer section, but maybe it's worth reading out.
1: Um, well, why don't I read the first one about his horror? Yes. Charles, I see great church trouble ahead. Can't they even let him die in peace? Charles responds. They mean something so different by peace.
0: And this is... It's such an interesting point from from Julia because she has not been engaged in her faith. She's been out of the church for a long time. And yet, a bit like Sebastian, there's this sense that the faith never really lets her go, that there is this sense that she can't step outside of it. It's that twitch upon the thread Mm.
1: that in this moment of crisis, she sees the importance of getting a priest for her father. And Charles's response to this is, it would be an outrage. No one could have made it clearer all his life what he thought of religion. They'll come now when his mind's wandering and he hasn't the strength to resist and claim him as a deathbed penitent. I've had a certain respect for their church up till now. If they do a thing like that, I shall know that everything stupid people say about them is quite true, that it's all superstition and trickery. Julia said nothing. Don't you agree? Still Julia said nothing. Don't you agree? I don't know, Charles. I simply don't know. Mm. I think that's also like very representative of um, the idea that this isn't a game that we're playing. Yeah. That to Charles it's like a game of numbers. Mm. That how dare they try and claim that number...
0: Yeah, because he just sees it as a as a formula. Because it is hard from the outside. Like he tries to ask, like, what is this like last sacrament thing, and how do you do it? And like everyone in the room has like slightly different understandings of it, and nobody quite like can't quite get a hold of what people are actually supposed to believe. And it's like, well, can he make an act of the will if he's still unconscious? Well, we believe that like you, you don't know when the will ends, and all of these things that like feel like they just come down to. Like, I don't know, pedantry or like he says, like superstition, that like you need to say the magic words at the right time and then he gets to go to heaven, you know, and to to kind of, yeah, it's his worst idea of what religion is.
1: And yet it's really interesting that at the end, in that deathbed scene, charles out of out of love for Julia, out of like various emotions of the time comes to a point where he can pray do you want to read that out
0: yeah he said then i knelt to and prayed "O oh god if there is a god forgive him his sins if there is such thing as sin and the man on the bed opened his eyes and gave a sigh the sort of sigh i imagined people made at the moment of death but his eyes moved so that we knew there was still life in him i suddenly felt the longing for a sign if only of courtesy, if only for the sake of the woman I loved, who knelt in front of me praying, I knew for a sign. It seemed so small a thing that was asked, the bare acknowledgement of a present, a nod in the crowd. I prayed more simply, God forgive him his sins and, please God, make him accept your forgiveness. So small a thing to ask. The priest took the little silver box from his pocket and spoke again in Latin touching the dying man with an oily wad. He finished what he had to do, put away the box and gave the final blessing. Suddenly, Lord Marchmain moved his hand to his forehead. I thought he felt the, the touch of the chrism and was wiping it away. Oh God, I prayed, don't let him do that. But there was no need for fear. The hand moved slowly down his breast, then to his shoulder, And Lord Marchmain made the sign of the cross. Then I knew that the sign I had asked for was not a little thing, not a passing nod of recognition. The phrase came back to me from my childhood of the veil of the temple being rent from top to bottom. It's hard to even speak after that. But yeah, that's such a powerful moment. And it has this ricochet of grace and it comes very much at the end of the novel, but even within the final few pages, there's this massive ricochet of grace. And I think it's so important, in some ways we've skipped to the end, like the climactic moment of grace, but the novel is full of this twisting journey of grace offered. There's that great Flannery O'Connor line about her her literature where she says, um, "The there is a moment of grace in most of the stories or a moment where it is offered and usually rejected and we actually see those moments of it being rejected but we also see the small moments of it being accepted that like build up to this powerful moment of it being accepted
1: yeah it's so beautiful and i love that like repetition of so small a thing to ask and then that sudden recognition that what you have actually asked for was not small at all and was in fact bought at the price of christ on the cross
0: it's so important because the, the, the crucial part about faith in the novel is that it doesn't leave the characters alone. There's these quotes from Sebastian near the start of the novel where it's like, Oh dear, it's very difficult being a Catholic. <laughs> Does it make much difference to you? Of course, all the time. Well, I can't say I've noticed. Are you struggling against temptation? You don't seem much more virtuous than me. I'm very, very much wickeder, said Sebastian indignantly. Oh, it's
1: so funny. <laughs> um, We've probably given everybody whiplash going from like that serious deathbed scene to the hilarity of Sebastian. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, the, these are the two sides of the same coin. There's this like flippancy about it, and then it comes in when it really matters. But he also says, I wish I liked Catholics more. And Charles replies, they seem just like other people. My dear Charles, that's exactly what they're not, particularly in this country where there's so few. It's not just that they're a clique. As a matter of fact, there are at least four cliques all blackguarding each other half of the time. But they've got an entirely different outlook on life. Everything they think important is different from other people. They try and hide it as much as they can, but it comes out all the time. And I think it's a curious mirror between that moment at the start and when Julia says at the end, they mean something so much different by the word peace.
1: Mm, definitely. And I think it's also like all through this novel so interesting to see our faith portrayed from the eyes of an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, that like it was written the World War II, mm-hmm. but in it feels so relevant to like people's attitude today. Yeah. Of like that kind of like, Baffle agnosticism of why would it even matter
0: and even hatred of the church like it talks to people like cordelia has a great line of saying that people hate mummy when they want to hate the church (laughs) when they want to hate god yes yes but the point is that it's so hard for the characters to come to this fate because it asks and it does ask so much of them it
1: demands a cost yeah and that's where sebastian fails so often
0: Mm -hmm. is in
1: failing to pay that cost yeah. What is missing from all of Charles's charm mm. is the cost of true beauty and truth.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So we just quoted Cordelia there, who is the younger sister of the family, and she's such a great character.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
1: she's like the most devout of the lot of them. And she has this really pivotal statement about Sebastian that she says, I hope I've got a vocation, Charles responds. I don't know what that means. It means you can be a nun. If you haven't a vocation, it's no good, however much you want it to be. And if you have a vocation, you can't get away from it, however much you hate it. Bridie thinks he has a vocation and hasn't. I used to think Sebastian had and hated it, but I don't know now. Everything has changed so much suddenly. And I think that's really pivotal to understanding the character of Sebastian, Mm. that he is being called to this vocation and doesn't want to accept the cost that it will demand of him.
0: Yeah, and it's the same with Charles and Julia, that they have to, again, you know, the ending of the novel, Julia refuses to marry Charles, and they go their separate ways, because she knows she can't keep him that way. That, like, she knows that it's no good, that the, the relationship will never be one that brings her closer to God. she she even talks about how she expects she'll be bad again in the future but almost that like if I manage to give up this one thing which I really want that maybe God will recognise that when I die and say that like you did try this one thing that you really wanted you said no that's not what God wants for me
1: yeah that she recognises the even deeper sin it would be Mm. to go through with that marriage like they've both been trying to get their divorces through hers hasn't come through yet And just her recognition that even though she made a mistake with marrying the first guy, that doesn't excuse her to get a divorce and marry Charles. Like, she can't just, like, brush off her sin. Mm
0: -hmm. That she's
1: actually being called to make a sacrifice instead. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: yeah. And so it's so interesting, and it's so interesting how it's about this giving up of love or giving up of pleasure and this self-sacrifice and there was an interesting article that I that I read which was called from Arcadia to Acesis the necessary loss of pleasure in, in the in Brideshead Revisited and it kind of tracks the book is like beginning in aestheticism and ending in asceticism. So (laughs) there's a very similar word. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, all of the beauty and the wonder and the glamour of it, and then ends in asceticism, this like absence of comfort, absence of glamour, you know, fasting and praying, that kind of life of the hermit. So this article has this great quote in it. And just just to flag This quote actually incorporates what ends up happening to Sebastian in the novel, or at least what's conjectured what happens to Sebastian. Um, So it, it begins with saying... In the epilogue, Charles describes himself to Hooper with only a tiny dollop of irony as being childless, homeless, middle-aged, loveless. This list of negations, loss of family, home, youth, love, neatly summarises what Charles has been stripped of throughout the novel. He loses everything and is at fault himself for many of these losses. His love of art appears to have died. He never loved his wife or his child children if Caroline's patronymic name is to be trusted <laughs> which is a good point. He has he has a daughter that he seems very little interested in meeting. Which...
1: refuses to go and feed
0: <laughs> <actually>. um, <laughs> His love of Sebastian is soured by bitter regret and fades to something that seems to exist only in the past tense. His love of Julia, questionable from the start is ultimately sacrificed on the altar of her conscience. Even the pleasures of eating and drinking recede, aided in part by the privations of water time and there is a reason for all this rooted entirely in Waugh's theological vision for the novel for Charles to be drawn to love of God he must rather like Job lose all other loves and pleasures that might distract him from the one love he's been led towards all along so do ascetic values triumph at the end of the novel Not in themselves, not in any kind of active sense, but in the sense that they are the only things left standing after the fierce little tragedy and the war, yes. And there is something of the ascetic... Discipline of Julia and Cordelia's grim wartime work with the ambulances, and a more literal asceticism in Sebastian's sad end in the monastery in Morocco, Cordelia describes to Charles where Sebastian is at the novel's end, in a monk's cell with a bed and crucifix and white walls, looking terrible, rather bold, with a straggling beard. Charles thinks of the youth with his teddy bear under the flowering chestnuts and says to Cordelia, "It is not what one would have foretold, but I wonder if he is wrong about this that you know there are the seeds of this need to move from the glories of bride'shead to the 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 walls of the monastery where Sebastian has lived as a kind of helper he's not he's not following a religious vocation but he's a an underporter."
1: Yeah, which is almost a really interesting side note that that's kind of portrayed as his way to holiness and God in a really positive way, but also that it hasn't cured him of his alcoholism, mm. that he's still holding on to that sin, but trying, mm. um, that he hasn't like been entirely reformed and gone off to live a holy life living out his vocation as a priest Mm. um, but that he's doing the best he can with his human limitations of that.
0: Yeah, yeah and in a similar way Charles ends the novel it goes back to the prologue begins with this section of him coming to the house during war times and it's the army have set up camp there and the epilogue obviously brings us right back to that moment and he he comes back to the chapel that's in the in the house and it's now been having been made inactive after the death of lady marchmain is now active again for the soldiers and he has this profound realization where he talks about how the builders did not know the uses to which their work would descend they made a new house with the stones of the old castle year by year generation after generation they enriched and extended it year by year the great harvest of timber in the park grew to ripeness until in sudden frost came the age of hooper the place was desolate and all the works were brought to nothing vanity of vanities all is vanities and we're going to come to this phrase the age of hooper in a second so if you're confused don't worry we're we're going to come back to it but um he then goes on to say something quite remote from anything the builders intended has come out of their work and out of the fierce little human tragedy in which i played something none of us thought about at the time a small red flame a beaten copper lamp of deplorable design relit before the beaten copper doors of the tabernacle the flame which the old knights saw from their tombs which they saw put out that flame burns again for other soldiers far from home farther in heart than acre or jerusalem it could not have been lit but for the builders and the tragedians and there i found it this morning burning anew among the old stones
1: it's such a beautiful place to end the novel. Mm. Uh, but it's also really interesting, in that we're kind of given hints that Charles may have converted, mm-hmm. but we're not given the glory of that conversion. Yeah, it's not a kind of novel where we're left to, like dwell in his like joy that Julia has sacrificed him to do the right thing, and mm-hmm. like therefore now living a fulfilled life alone yeah um he is still very much struggling and um like battling his way through life yeah and yet
0: the lamp is burning the lamp is burning absolutely and i think it's i I, in one of the articles i read it really pointed out to me which i hadn't quite noticed before that it's it's very important that the the beaten copper lamp of deplorable design it's like this this you know this lamp in very poor taste is the thing that's still burning that he has given up his need for the beauty um and what's left is the the beauty of god but i think Just to make one last point, and I know this has been a very long episode, we're definitely not used to recording anymore, we're back into rambling maybe a little bit. But there is a final point that's important to make, which is that as much as war is making a point that beauty isn't enough, that it can lead us astray, that it has to be shed if it leads us away from God, that ultimately the deplorable design of the lamp is less important than the presence of God, He also makes this point that the inverse isn't true and so we had that quote just before about the asceticism and how all of these characters end up in quite kind of um, stripped back surroundings at the end and how in some ways that's where the the novel leads them and in some ways they're all closer to God but like you said it's not this sort of glorious return but at the same time it's better that they're they're closer to God however There is a counterpoint to this, which is that phrase, the age of Hooper. So Hooper is this character from the prologue who is an officer. And he's described in this very materialistic, very... Like he's the exact opposite of everything to do with the, the, the opening chapters after the prologue of all the gloriousness. He's described as... Uh, Hooper had no illusions about the army, or rather no special illusions distinguishable from the general enveloping fog from which he observed the universe. He had come to it reluctantly, under compulsion, and after he had made every feeble effort in his power to obtain deferment. He accepted it, he said, like the measles. Hooper was no romantic. He had not as a child ridden with Rupert's horse or sat among the campfires at Xanthus' side at an age when my eyes were dry to all save poetry, that stoic redskin interlude which our schools introduce between the fast-flowing tears of the child and the man. Hooper had wept often, but never for Henry's speech on St. Crispin's Day, nor for the epitaph at Thermopylae. The history they taught him had had few battles in it, but instead a profusion of the of detail about humane legislation and recent industrial change. Gallipoli, ba- Balaclava, Quebec, Lepanto, Bannockburn, Roncesvalles, and Marathon, these and the battle in the West where Arthur fell and a hundred such names whose trumpet notes even now in my seer and lawless state call to me irresistibly across the intervening years with all this clarity and strength of boyhood sounded in vain to Hooper. So... Yeah, this- yeah,
1: I think it's important to say that in context of Charles having become disillusioned with the army and really disliking it, mm-hmm. but yet Hooper has a total different perspective on it that is even
0: more dire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that there's almost a sense that as much as Charles had to shed his sort of pagan approach to beauty, that at least that was an in, like that at least that was a starting point of the thread and that it's almost like where would you begin with Hooper? Um, So there is this kind of redeeming point of like even when it's not on the right track that beauty has that ability to step you on the road and that the thing that was wrong was the rejection of suffering. Um, Cordelia has a line about um, there is no holiness without suffering and she talks about Sebastian then suffering in his life and how even in a strange way, like we said with that, that way that he ends up that you don't really expect, because there has been an ability to embrace his own suffering it has led him to good but
1: whereas Hooper does his feeble best his feeble to best. avoid the sufferings of being in the army yeah, but doesn't either have like the energy and zest to fully avoid it it's only his feeble best Mm -hmm. or like the capacity to enter into that suffering yeah and because there's nothing like beauty yeah calling him into it yeah and pointing the way yeah he's refused all of that
0: he he just stands apart it doesn't touch him he went to school he presumably heard the same things as charles but it just didn't impact him at all and there is a sadness to that kind of rejection of the tradition that inspires that kind of beauty like I was really struck by it and it might be actually a topic we come back to in another episode of the podcast which is the relation of Brideshead Revisited to T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets which obviously we've done an episode on The Four Quartets but why not combine my two favorite things and talk about both of them but I will just reference one of the lines here which just feels like that line that Charles has about the builders and the generations and it being lost and found is so reminiscent of this line from The Four Quartets where Eliot says and what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And like you said, with Charles, we're not given the glory of his conversion. That's not our business. There's just the trying, that's what we get.
1: Yeah, we're given the trying, and that's what it's, it's so pivotal throughout the novel, is like even just coming back to the willingness to try mm. rather than to run away from the call to try.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So that is our first episode back hopefully it's not been too much of a muddle like we said there's so much in the novel and it's not always the most straightforward of stories so I
1: feel like we could have kept talking for another three hours Easily. and not touched on like half the novel yet
0: I know it's... maybe we should
1: have just read it to you <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> you know just read the novel it's it's a great it's a great uh, way to spend your time I really recommend it um, yeah uh, I don't know I'm almost it's been so long since we've recorded one of these I'm now struggling to think what happens next but I think the next section is for you to tell us what you've been enjoying Phoebe
1: which is my opportunity to talk about another writer writing at a very similar time to Evelyn Waugh also about the UK and that kind of like dying old England
0: hmm
1: her name is Elizabeth Googe. Uh, She wrote, some of you might be familiar with the novel The Little White Horse, Um, there was a mm, moderately okay adaptation (laughs) of it that I don't think did very well, but if you loved the novel you might have liked the adaptation. I certainly did as a child. But anyway, The Little White Horse is like her best known novel, and I recently discovered a couple of, that she had actually gone and written a whole lot of other novels, Mm. Um, and a podcast called A Well-Read Life put me onto one called The Scent of Water, which is just this really beautiful novel about, like, the old country world of England, and it's got, like, this old house in it that's been passed down by a great aunt to this lady Um, who's now retreating there in a way to kind of learn to love again. Like she's built up all of these barriers in her heart and through just the parish life and the people around her is being forced to open up again. Mm. It's very explicitly Christian, which is lovely, but not in like a patronizing way Mm. and not necessarily in... A clean linen way either. Like it's much more clear-cut than Bride's head, I think. Yeah. Um, but it still doesn't like tie everything off with a neat little bow and wrap up every loose end, mm-hmm. you know? You're left with the characters still on their journey but you can now see where their journey is taking them. Mm. So yeah it's just a really beautiful book and I would recommend it.
0: Excellent.
1: So that was The Scent of Water by Elizabeth Gooch.
0: And I, uh, I will have a little less to say because I haven't finished it yet, but I am listening to the audiobook of Swallows and Amazons. I mean, it's children's literature, but it's wonderful. It's your classic. That was a childhood
1: favourite of mine.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm reading it for the first time now, which is a surprise given how much I love the Lake District and it's so kind of intertwined with the, the landscape there. But it's very fun. It's, it's a wonderful adventure, so I'm enjoying that such a glorious summer book it is yeah Yeah. absolutely um so i believe that should be all i I genuinely am struggling to remember if there's anything else i usually say at the end of these except that to follow us on instagram and on twitter on instagram we have an account called uh, risking enchantment podcast On Twitter, it's just myself, which is at the handle at Seeking Watson. And please do reach out. I also know some people reached out to me over the summer um, and sent me lovely emails. And I am so sorry. We will get back to you. I happened to go traveling right after we published the last episode. In fact, I think the last episode came out as I was traveling. I think so. And so I essentially logged out of those accounts and totally forgot to log back into them (laughs) for most of the summer and I only really saw them recently. So You took a
1: thorough summer break. Yes,
0: but I really apologise. So there were some really nice emails. I will get back to you. I know one of them at least was late. They were asking for recommendations in Dublin when they were visiting. I'm so sorry. I really am. But I will reply and I promise anyone who does contact in future will get a more timely response.
1: (laughs) I will say we will reply to emails mm-hmm. but maybe not that promptly
0: <laughs> yeah i'm not wonderful at the prompt email um, reply
1: instagram messages are probably like a slightly better way to get a, a quick faster reply
0: that's that's a good point yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like,
1: if someone is looking for like recommendations of dublin yes in the future which we are very happy to give
0: but yeah yeah <laughs> so my apologies and also welcome back thank you very much for joining us again And we hope you enjoy the upcoming episodes of this season and wishing you all the best. God bless. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com.